already but not yet. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? Already but not yet. It's a kind of an interesting phrase, and it's actually one that theologians use to describe this time and this age in which we live. And it, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that I've heard about actually myself recently, and I think it's a great way of describing the kind of this tension in which we live. It's called the already but the not yet. And I feel like the best way to kind of illustrate what that means and, and talk about what that means would be to kind of look at the illustration of traditional, uh, I guess, dating, engagement, and getting married, okay? So picture with me, you've got this young man and a young lady, they're living at home with their parents, and then one day they fall in love, you know, I am 16 going on 17, they, they have this moment where they fall in love, and they start um, dating or courting or whatever you want to call it. So they decide they like each other. Well, finally, one day, the young man gets up the courage to say, okay, I, I want to spend my life with this lady. I'm going to ask for a hand in marriage. And in that moment, he takes, you know, a wedding ring and gets down on the knee and asks her to marry him. And if she accepts that invitation, at that point, they've already committed to each other. They've already said, okay, we're going to be married. We're going to be engaged to be married, okay? But they're not yet married. They're still living with their parents. They're still, um, you know, doing life as they've known it. They're working towards marriage, and, and they're not experiencing the joy and the intimacy of marriage yet. Does that make sense? So they live in this tension of the already, they've committed to each other, but they're not yet married, okay? And that's much like the tension in which we live. We live in this already, not yet. The already is that we know who Jesus is. We know that Jesus is God's son, as Christians, I believe that he is the Messiah, the one prophesied about in all of the scriptures. So we already know that. We've already experienced his grace. I've already, as a Christian, experienced his forgiveness. And the Bible tells me there's nothing that can separate me from him because I've experienced that grace and that forgiveness. But I've not yet seen the world come to be what it's meant to be. There's still sin and depravity. I still struggle with temptation. There's still hurt and pain, there's cancer, disease, divorce. You don't have to look far to see these problems, right? And so we live in this tension of the already, but the not yet. Okay, does that make sense? So we're kind of in this in-between stage, and that's exactly what we're talking about. So we'll come back to that phrase, already, but not yet, throughout this message, because I want you guys to see that's kind of the tension, much like those early disciples who started the church lived in, we live in that same tension of the already but the not yet. That makes sense? Okay, so we're going through this big picture series, and this has been an attempt um, for us to kind of zoom back out and look at the Bible as a whole and say, what does the Bible say to us? What, what is it communicating to us on a high level? I know some, sometimes we get bogged down in these stories in the Bible, and there's great truth in Scripture. I'm not saying that there isn't, but I think it's good for us to zoom back out and say, what is the story of God? What is the story that he's been telling us? And there's four key elements that you have to see that are run throughout this whole of Scripture, and we're going to go through them now. The first is creation. Creation. We hear the very first words of the Bible say, in the beginning, God. And it's very clear that we didn't come from some ooey-gooey, you know, explosion of gases that happened to be somewhere, but rather God created he gave life. The Bible tells us that we're created in God's image. 
He is the creator. And so that was the first kind of pillar for us to wrap our heads around. The second pillar in the story is the fall. Sin entered our world. God created us with the ability to choose to worship him or to worship ourselves. If he created us with just the ability to worship him, we'd be robots. We wouldn't have a choice. We'd just have to worship God. And to have, have people, to have beings that truly worship him, he had to create us with an ability to choose. And our choice was to turn away from God, and sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and it's been a problem ever since. You don't have to look far, like I said, to see the causes and effects of sin. So, creation fall. The next piece is the beautiful piece, redemption. That's Christ. Throughout history, throughout the Bible, God is moving towards sending his son, Jesus, to save the world. All of Scripture is pointing and yearning towards this redemption. And the Bible tells us very simply in Romans 10, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's super clear on that. And that's what, to to put our faith and put our trust in Jesus means simply that we are trusting for him to save us from the fall, to save us from our sin. Because when the fall came, it put a separation between us and God. And the only way to bridge that gap is Jesus to believe in his redemption. Like I said, to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The fourth and final element, the one that we haven't seen yet, is the restoration. That's where God is going to make all things new, where sin and pain, where hurt is going to be taken away. It's going to be removed. And I don't know about you, but when I start talking about that, when I start thinking about that, I get really excited. Because that's kind of cool to think about a world without all those nasty things. And so these are the four pillars that we see through the overarching story of the Bible. And like I said, we live in this tension of the already but not yet, and that simply is the tension between the redemption and the restoration. Jesus said he's coming again, but we haven't seen that happen yet. So what we're going to do today is we're going to open our Bibles here in a second and look at what did Jesus say as he was leaving his disciples, as he was kind of leaving them in this tension between the redemption and the restoration, what did he say to his disciples? And so that's where we're going to start today. And we're going to jump into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And we're going to look at two accounts of this leaving of Jesus. So if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles with me, I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a seat near you that's actually the church's Bible. And if you don't own one, you can take this as a gift if you promise to read it. So Acts chapter 1. Is where we're going. And if you're actually in the church's Bible, it's page 704, Acts chapter 1. <coughs> okay, we're going to start in verse 4. And again, this is Jesus talking to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave. While he was together with them, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. For John baptized you with water. But you will not be baptized, sorry, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, <laughs> and to the ends of the earth. 
After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took them, took him out of their sight. While he was, but while he was going, excuse me, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, "Men of Galilee, why do you standing? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven." Okay. So that's one account of this story. We'll come back and talk about that. But I also want you to look at another account. Matthew 28. Last book of Matthew. First book of the New Testament is Matthew. Page 647. Matthew 28. And verse 18 is when we're going to pick it up. And again, this is just a different account of the same story. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a great promise there at the end of the the Scripture. It's kind of cool to think we're talking about how we live in the same age as the disciples did 2,000 years later on. And it's like Jesus is almost talking to us here in the text, and he's saying, you know, he knew that we would be reading these words one day 2,000 years later on hearing, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I find encouragement in that. Well, as we look at these two scriptures, I think it's good for us to ask the question, what does Jesus leave with his disciples? What does he command his disciples to do? What's his charge to these disciples? Because whatever he says to these disciples, I think applies to us. Because like we've already said, they lived in that same kind of tension of Jesus has already come, that accepted him as Savior, but he hasn't come again a second time yet. And we live in the same time as them. And so as believers, they were given a mission, and whatever that mission was, I think would be the same mission for us as well. Do you guys see that? Would you agree with that? Okay, so as we look at the storyline, we see that Jesus leaves his followers with a mission. And, And the first piece of this mission is simply this, and this is your first fill in the blank if you're following along in your notes. It's to connect with him by receiving or receive the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing he commands them to do, is to receive the Holy Spirit. I believe this is talking about the importance for us to connect with God. You know, the the commands that Jesus gave his disciples throughout his ministry was to love God and to love people. And I think he was reminding his disciples, hey, You cannot minister, you cannot go, you cannot be my witnesses until you are full of me. You can't empty yourself until your cup is full. And so you have to receive from me first. And I think there's great truth for us here today too, is that we have to connect with the source of life before we can give of the source of life. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I just want you to see that there has to be a connection with God. There has to be a submission to God. And And I think this simply looks like us daily coming to God and saying, hey, God, would you take my my flesh, my selfish desires, my agenda, and push those to the side? And would you have the steering wheel of my life today? Would you have control over my life today? Would you enable and guide my steps today? I'm going to wait on you, God, and I want your Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me throughout my day today. I believe that's what it looks like. And I I must confess, I'm not great at this. You know, there's days that I live like that, and there's days I totally don't live like that. There's days where my... (coughs) 
where my flesh is in control and my selfish desires rule my life, not the Holy Spirit. But I want to encourage us today that I believe this is what Jesus was commanding them to do first. The second thing that he commands them to do is to be witnesses. He says, I want you to go and be my witnesses, both near and far. And I think that command is still true for us today as well. He's commanding you and I to be witnesses wherever we are, to those that are close to us and those that are even far from us. Those that are close to you may be those who live in your home, your children, your spouse, your extended family, um, your friends. Those that are further from you may be even your co-workers, people that you see at the coffee shop at once a week. You know, I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I believe we are called to be witnesses to who God is and what he's done in our lives. The fact of the matter is we have to receive from him before we're able to be witnesses to what he's done and is doing in our lives. You can't give us something you haven't first received, right? And so I just really think this is important for us to see. Uh, The interesting thing in Matthew 28 when he talks about making disciples, it isn't just about converting people to Christianity, getting them to pray a prayer saying, you know, Jesus, I love you and I'll live my life for you and then, okay, you're good. You've got your, you know get to an eternity free card type thing going on. What he's talking about here is this process where people come to faith, but that's just a step in the journey of discipling them, teaching them, leading them towards Christ. And so we need to see that making disciples is a continual process. So these are the commands that are given to the early disciples, and I think we can simply boil them into these two things. The cool thing is that we have the, the beautiful thing of perspective and being able to look at and see, okay, how did the disciples do at this? And so what I want to do now is kind of jump into story mode and look at what happened with the disciples once they received these commands. What did they do? And so if you want to put your story caps on, we're kind of going to jump into storyline mode for a little while. What happens was the disciples go back to Jerusalem. They're in a room and they're praying together. There's about 120 of them praying together. And they're praying pretty fervently. They've just seen resurrected Jesus. They've just been hanging out with Jesus. And he's told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting there. They're praying. Some time goes by. <coughs> and after this time goes by, they, um, they're there. And this special day on the Jewish calendar, Pentecost, comes around. And as they're there, they're praying this morning. And the building where they're meeting starts to shake. And this great wind comes through the building. And then all of a sudden, there's like things that look like fire on the top of the people, the 120 people in the room. I mean, this is a crazy experience. And as this happens, they start to speak in all sorts of languages. And they rush out of the building. God sends them out of the building. And as they're doing this, this commotion kind of breaks out in Jerusalem. And people come rushing to see what's going on. And as they rush to see what's going on, they hear the gospel, they hear the good news being proclaimed in their own languages. There's people visiting from all other countries and they hear the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages and they're confused. They're like, is God doing something? And then some other people are like, no, no, these guys are drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, men of Israel, listen to me. These guys aren't drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early for that. He says, this is what's going on. God is pouring out his spirit like he said through the prophet Joel, on all mankind. And he gets up and tells them about Christ. He tells them that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says, you guys crucified him. 
Jesus was the Messiah and you crucified him. But that's okay because through his death, he's forgiven us of our sins. And he goes on to explain the gospel to them. He hits them with two things, the truth and grace. And as he does that, these guys are cut. The scriptures say that they're cut to the heart. And they hear the gospel and they believe in Christ. And 3,000 men come to faith that day. Instant church, right? They've gone from 120 to 3,000, like in an instant. A few days later, Peter and his buddy John are walking into the temple and there's this guy, a guy who doesn't have the ability to walk. He's lame, sitting by the gate of the temple and he's begging. He's asking for money. He asks Peter for some money and John, and, and they turn around and Peter looks at him and says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'm going to give you. He says, get, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this guy jumps to his feet, realizes what's happened, and just starts going berserk, praising God, jumping around, running around with his new legs, like this guy is flipping out. They run into the temple complex together, and this big commotion breaks out because everybody's like, hey, isn't that the guy who doesn't walk, like the beggar? And now he's running around, what's going on? And as this crowd rushes to see what's going on, Peter again stands up and gives them the truth and grace. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them that Jesus was the Messiah. And he points them towards him. And as he does that, 5,000 people come to put their faith in Christ. Instant church. They've gone from 3,120, well, 3,000-ish, to 8,000. And that's just the men. That's not the you know, women and children as well. The church is exploding. And it's an amazing thing to see. Your next fill in the blank there, or your first fill in the blank is, um, oh, sorry, your next one. Church is, the church is established in Jerusalem at Pentecost. That's the first thing that we have, see happening in this storyline. So the church is established in Jerusalem at this time. And it's great. They're enjoying being together. They're sharing everything that they have. All these Jews are huddled together, <coughs> worshipping God, praising Him daily, and loving it. And it's a good thing. But persecution starts to come. All of a sudden... People are getting put in prison because they believe in Jesus. The other Jews in the city of Jerusalem do not like what they see. And so this great persecution starts to break out. Some people are even getting killed for believing in Jesus. And as this persecution breaks out, the people start to run away from the city of Jerusalem. As they do that, God uses that to spread the message of the gospel. Your next fill in the blank there is simply this. The church flourishes and spreads and grows amid persecution. As this persecution breaks out, the people are spread out throughout the region. And as they go, they tell the good news, the message of Jesus. And the Bible is very clear that those that spoke this message, not just to the Jews, but actually to Gentiles, God blesses them in an extra way. He's extra with those guys. Because God is trying to show the, the early church that this message isn't just for Jews, this message is for Gentiles, which is what most of us are as well. Because up to this point, it had been just an exclusive um, Jewish religion to that point, a, a, a Jewish um, tradition for them. And so this persecution starts to happen, and then uh, they're, they're spreading out. The message of the gospel, the churches are popping out throughout the whole area. Peter goes down to a church in Antioch to visit with these Jews that are worshipping there. And as he's there, <coughs> excuse me, as he's there, he sees this vision from God 
where he's commanded to go and visit with some Gentile people. So he's a little concerned about this because he's not really into the whole Gentile thing. He goes up anyway, following God. And as he goes, the Holy Spirit shows up and these people put their faith in Jesus. And as they do that, he realizes, hey, this message isn't just for Jews. This message is for Gentiles as well. So he goes back to Jerusalem and says, hey, God made it very clear that this message is for everyone. And so this, this, this worship of Jesus, this worship of the Messiah becomes, and, and at that point it's called the way, it goes on to be called Christians. This Christianity thing is for everyone. And so this is a very important moment for us to, to note is for the inclusion of the Gentiles. <coughs> well, the next person that we see enter the scene is a guy called Saul. And actually, his other name is Paul. His name gets changed. But Saul's an interesting guy because he is a very zealous young man for God. He believes that God has called him to eradicate these Jesus followers, to get rid of these Jesus followers, this false Messiah. And so Saul is going from town to town, dragging people to to prison, approving of their death, these people who follow this name of Jesus. And he's on the road one day, headed out to pick up some people and take them back to prison. And as he's going down the road, this bright light shines on him and he, he, he hits the ground and he has this supernatural encounter with God. In this moment, this voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And in this moment, he gets it. He realizes, I've been on the wrong team. I've been fighting for the wrong side. And he changes. He, he goes from being this radical guy against the early church to being the most radical guy for the early church. And his name's changed from Saul to Paul to, to signify that change that's happened. In that moment, he experiences the grace of God. He experiences the forgiveness for all the wrong things that he's done. And he goes on to become one of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever known. He goes throughout the whole entire Roman Empire at the time, starting churches. He meets people, tells them about Christ, establishes leaders, starts a little church, and then moves on to the next city. He does this time and time again. And he starts all these churches. God uses him in a very powerful way. And one of the most powerful ways he uses him is towards the end of his life. Paul is traveling and finally comes back to Jerusalem. As he, as he comes into Jerusalem, He's arrested by the Jews. And in this moment, he's put in prison for pretty much the rest of his life. But as he's put in prison, he starts writing letters. And as he writes these letters, talking about how do we do church, what does the gospel mean, what are the fruit of the Spirit, these letters become the back end of our Bible. They're they're the letters of Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, all these great, great letters of the Bible were written by Paul while he was a prisoner. And so I don't know about you, but I'm actually grateful that Paul was put in prison because if he hadn't been, we wouldn't have those great books of the Bible that we use. So jumping back out of story mode, as we look at the back end of the Bible, you can see all the the writings of Paul. And then finally, you get to some other letters. There's one um, written by a guy named James and you get to a couple of uh, books written by Peter. And finally, you get to several books written by John, the disciple of Jesus, one of the original disciples of Jesus. 
And as we get to those books, we finally get to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is important because it's the last book of the Bible. And it's the book in which God finalized Scripture by painting a picture of the future and of eternity. You can see that in your notes there. God finalizes Scripture by painting a picture of the future and of eternity through the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about the future here in just a moment. But I think it would be a miss for me to just talk about that without first kind of filling you in a little bit on what's happened in the last 2,000 years. We have this beautiful thing that I like to call, well, everybody likes to call, church history, okay? So from the time that the Bible was finished being written to now is about 2,000 years. And in that time, we have what we call church history. And in church history, there's, uh, there's books and resources, sermons out there that you can listen to about this stuff. It's very fascinating to see how God moved throughout the generations that lead us up to today. There's been good things. There's been bad things. There's been the Crusades, bad things. There's been revivals, good things, throughout history. And it's really cool to look at the study of these things and see ultimately how God has been moving. Because as we look at church history, we can see that God has been faithful, God has been good, and his word and his message of Jesus has not been able to be quenched. It hasn't been able to be put out. The message of the gospel has been spread throughout the world, even through the dark ages, even through hard times, maybe even especially through the hard times. God has been moving, and it's really cool to look at those things. So if you have any questions about church history and that sort of stuff, I'd encourage you to do some research on it. There's some great resources out there. Nick or myself can maybe point you in the direction of a few of those. But church history is a very fascinating thing. And it's cool to see that overall, God has been working. God has been faithful. And the message of salvation that comes through Jesus has not been able to be quenched because God is moving and continues to move these last 2,000 years. Well, we finally get to the book of Revelation, like I said. And the book of Revelation is about the future. It was a vision given to John about the future. And it's a lot of symbolism and interesting things in there. If you, as you look at the study of end times, the study of end times is called eschatology. And as you look at this whole eschatology thing, there are a bunch of big and confusing words as you look at it. You know, you'll get in a conversation with somebody who's really up on all these things and they'll talk about, you know, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, uh, dispensational theology. You know, there's all these big, crazy words out there about this stuff. And the reason that there are these different views is because it's very symbolic, um, all the writings in Revelation, and some of it's really open to interpretation as to what it means. And so what you need to know is that this is not a closed-handed issue. These things that we talk about when we talk about end times are not closed-handed issues because nobody ultimately knows exactly what's going to happen in exactly what order. And so we don't call it a closed-handed issue. A closed-handed issue is Jesus is the Messiah of the world. That's, I mean, that has to be true. But what you believe, whether you believe there'll be a tribulation before Jesus comes back or after, you know, Jesus takes his people away, you know, that, that is not a closed-handed issue. I was talking with a friend one day about this whole all of these different thoughts, and we kind of gone around and around, and finally he said to me, you know, I believe in pantheology. And I expected him to give me at that point this elaborate explanation of what pantheology was. 
And so I kind of ready myself for that. And he said, I honestly believe that everything's going to pan out. And that's, that's, that's my theology of this whole thing. And I thought about that. I was like, oh, that's actually kind of deep because the truth of the matter is God ultimately wins. God ultimately is going to be victorious. We know that. And for we, we who believe in Christ, our salvation, our end is secure. And we can find great rest knowing that we are secure in Christ. And that ultimately he wins. And he is going to be glorious victor over everyone and everything. I want to read for you Acts 20. uh, No, not Acts, sorry. Revelation 21, I think it is. Yes, Revelation 21. This is the second last book of the Bible. And it talks about this supremacy of Christ. And it talks about how he ultimately rules and reigns over all things. And I just want you to picture with me as we read this. How awesome this is going to be, okay? Just picture with me what we ultimately have to look forward to. uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. Too bad if you're a surfer, right? Um, I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting there that this illustration of marriage is being used as we used that earlier on to talk about this already but not yet. You see that relation? Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Kind of like the the Garden of Eden, where they would, you know, Adam would walk and talk with God. How cool is that? Verse 4 continues on. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Amen. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, that's God, said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Write, be, write because these words are faithful and true. I don't know about you, but I get excited when I start thinking about that. I get excited about thinking about, okay, we have an eternity that is secure with God, and ultimately we get to spend eternity with Him in community, in, in communion with, with God, getting to walk with Him as Adam did before the fall. And I don't know about you, but I, I get very excited about that, thinking about what the future holds in Christ. And so I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning, But I want to kind of zoom back out and say, okay, what do we learn? As we've looked through these scriptures, as we've covered these big chunks of um, importance in the Christian faith, we've talked about the establishment of the church, the early church. We've talked about church history. We've talked about the end times. We've talked about these three things. What do we learn? What does that mean for you guys today? And I think there's two things that we need to apply. The first thing is this, is that we are called to be a part of what God is doing. That's your next fill in the blank. We are called to be a part of what God is doing. It would be wrong for us to sit here today and be like, okay, that's good. I'm glad the church was established and I'm glad that you know everything's going to pan out and we get to live in heaven. We need to see that whatever Jesus called those disciples to, he's calling us to. Things haven't changed on that front. We're still in this already but not yet stage. And so when Jesus says, hey, you need to receive the Holy Spirit and you need to be my witnesses, 
Those commands to love God and love people are for us as well. We need to see that. And I hope that today you're encouraged in those two areas. To receive God, to connect daily with God. And to daily be a witness wherever he's putting you. Whether that's at your workplace, in your family, wherever he's putting you. I just want to encourage you that that's what he's commissioned. That's what he's called you to do. This year, may 2014 be a year where you connect with God and when you're, where you're his witness wherever he puts you. That's my encouragement for you today. The second thing I want to encourage you with too today is this. As people living in this already but not yet thing that we've talked about, means that we're to live with celebration and anticipation. I believe that God's calling us to live in those two ways, to live in celebration and anticipation. Let me explain a little bit. We live in the already. That means we already know that Christ came and died for our sins. We know that he is the Messiah. We know that we have eternity with him. That is worth celebrating. That's totally worth celebrating. That's worth singing and praising, lifting our hands. That's worth getting out of bed for in the morning, right? The fact that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our brokenness. We have faith in him. We have love in him. That is worth celebrating. The other thing is, it's worth anticipating what's going to come in this new heaven, in this new earth. It's worth anticipating Jesus' return and knowing, hey, he is coming back. I'm called to be a witness and I, I'm going to live in anticipation every day knowing that he's coming back. As I, as I was studying and as I was looking at these two words, celebration and anticipation, I was thinking, man, I would love for those two words to be the hallmark of my life. How cool would it be that if I died before Jesus came back and, and Liz, if you decided to make me a tombstone, you don't have to, but if you decided to, if you put on that tombstone, Harley Rathel was one who lived in celebration and anticipation of Christ. I think that would be the, one of the coolest things, like, because those are great words to describe who we are called to be as believers, as people who have this hope and, and this anticipation for the future. And so I just want to leave you with those words as, as we kind of wrap up today. I just want to say, hey guys, let's not be down in the mouth, down in the girls, Christians. God has given us a great and joyful message. He's saved us and he's coming back. And that's worth celebrating and anticipating, okay? That's what I really, truly want you to leave here today, full of joy in what's coming.